3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation, and we recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning everyone. Today is Wednesday the 27th of February and uh, you're listening to Wednesday Breakfast. My name is Will. I'm Edwin. And I'm Dane. And um, I hope you've all had a lovely time, everyone. On mic two. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're just flashing me the peace sign. I'm like, yeah, yeah um, great. We're a bit like that in here. Hell yeah. <laughs> let's, uh, let's, anyway. Um, let's start the week. Um, yeah. How have we started? I, ha- I brought some wheat bakes with me this morning. You're I had, so smart. I had breakfast in the studio, um, right. but I forgot that I'm lactose intolerant. Oh. Mistake. Ah. That's not good. Lucky Hashtag you. sadness. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no I was very happy, though, coming with my little bag, my little plastic bag, like my little Ziploc bag with my wheat bakes in it. That's I was so like, I am prepared. <laughs> it, it sounds like a backhanded compliment that's very, very, not conscientious, very good planning, <laughs> and I want to be you when I grow up. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I just want to, like, I just cannot plan for yeah. waking well, up at know, 4.30 in the morning. So. A, a, while, a while back, they used to have a convenience yeah. store in the corner. Ah. So you could have gone and got yourself ah. some proper mm. yeah. stuff. I discovered, because the body's not used to waking up really super early, so I've mm. discovered a good sugary cup of tea yep. is yep, my yep, recommendation yep. for anyone out there. Big burst of sugar. Big burst of sugar into your system. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. okay. That's we how we get through these. <laughs> we are not nutritionists or dietitians. Yeah, we actually have just chocolate on the bench that we constantly <laughs> snack at to keep ourselves going. <laughs> just a so spoonful of sugar keeps the medicine away. Is that the top? <laughs> yeah. Medicine away? It keeps the, helps the medicine go down. Oh, oh. okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, and Will, you don't even have any kids and you know <laughs> <laughs> Halfway there, <Yeah>. Will. <laughs> no, um, so we've got a big show, so shall we d- start yeah. running through things? Um, so first of all, we're going to do a quick alternative news, mm-hmm. um, and then we're going to hear from Tillman Ruff, is that right? Yeah, we're going to hear from Tillman Ruff and from um, ICANN, which is the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, and they're going to mm-hmm. be talking about the U.S.'s uh, recent withdrawal from the INF Treaty, which is mm. a landmark treaty, and I'll get to it a little bit later, mm-hmm. give you a bit more background, um, and what that means for the international community and kind of arms development. Mm. Mm. And then we're hearing from HAG, is that right? Yes, we're speaking to Fiona York about a trial that they've got coming up, and it's essentially um, you know, just making sure that there's uh, different models to support and engage with the aged care system. Um, it's, yeah, there'll be 62 trials delivered across the country. Perfect. HAG uh, is Housing for the Aged Action Group. We've had them on the show a couple of times mm. before talking about um, retirement villages and things like that. So, uh, and housing. And housing for in older general. tenants. Yeah, mm. yeah. So it'll be great to hear more. Then we're going to have Ella Buckland, um, who's a Parents Next reform campaigner. Um, Ella Buckland uh, is on Parents Next, um, like many Australians are. Um, Parents Next is a compulsory work readiness and um, yeah. sort of parenting help kind of program that's paired with a parenting payment. Yep. Yeah. Um, and it's 
really bad. And we're going to be talking about how bad Parents Next is and about the Definitely. petition to make it voluntary rather than compulsory. Yeah, and um, we did actually talk about, we did cover this story a mm. few weeks ago, mm-hmm. um, and we got the member from the Single Moms Foundation, mm. which was actually behind this, and she yeah. said that the whole thing's turned towards punishing single yes. moms rather than Absolutely. providing actual social support. So it'll be great to follow on with this story and see totally. how it's developing. Mm. Totally. And then the government website had talked about a compliance-based program to assist young parents, Mm. mostly mothers. So now that they're rolling it out, the word young seems like Mm. it's just sort of formed by the wayside. Yeah, yeah, there are certain parameters. Um, There's a, a lot of stuff to do with compliance where people are just dropping off the payments. Having yeah. to go without food for the weekend until yeah. the people get back in the office on Monday. Like, mm. just a really the shocking... The word compliance really shocking is interesting. And yeah. by human yeah. policy. Also, what I found fascinating was mm. um, the service providers have also been massively critiqued... Uh, have mm. also massively con- critiqued the plan. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of people who are supposed to be, you know, uh, pairing up mm-hmm. like businesses mm-hmm. have gone, this is just not working. So I think mm. when you've got like like most of the stakeholders being, <laughs> Absolutely. being like, yeah, this is a little bit flawed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so that's, that's Ella Buckland who's been, um, who's been campaigning on um, reforming or getting rid of parents next. And to the end of the show, we're speaking to Christian from the Australian Conservation Society. What are we talking about? Yeah, so we're going to be talking about Adani's second license breach um, within uh, polluting within their coal mine kind of uh, area within the Great Barrier Reef, and it started in 2017. Adani officially started, you know, its process, and this is its second license breach in as many years. So we're going to be talking to the Australian Conservation Foundation and kind of talking about, yeah, what where this leads activism, I suppose, mm. towards uh, stopping Adani. And, yeah, if this might slow Adani's progress down within our court. Absolutely. And the new climate change fund. And the new, unfortunately, not the new climate change fund, sorry, Dean, that, that will be coming up next week. Yeah. Um, but touching on that, I might bring that up a little bit in mm. alternative news. Wonderful. Uh, we'll be right back. Some folks know about it, some don't. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio Wednesday Breakfast. This is Alternative News. I know we trialled Alternative Media last week, but um, I don't need to listen to more podcasts because I'm currently listening to about 40. <laughs> and um, so, well, At least you're not watching television, which is a great thing. No, 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 no. You misunderstand. I am also listening to watching television. Oh, okay. Oh, you're one of those guys, a multitasker. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think men could do that, Will. <laughs> well, well, you learn things about me every day. Um, so <laughs> we, we wanted to, this is a bit of a turn, um, talk about something that's been in the news. Um, actually, we're not going to talk about it, really. Hmm. Um, so as we all know, the suppression order on the trial of Cardinal George Pell has been lifted um, mm-hmm. and he has been charged with historical sex abuses. Um, to 
two counts. Yeah, two counts. I believe. Yeah. Um, and we don't want to go into it too much because really this news is unavoidable, isn't it? It's everywhere. Mm. It's every paper this morning. I'm looking... Every yep, paper this every morning. Every single paper. It's the front headline. Yep. The age has um, got six pages on it. Totally. People are tweeting about it endlessly, as they should. It's a huge story. But I'm just thinking about the people who are directly involved in this case as, as victims and as families of the victims, mm. um, but also people who have experienced similar things in our community. And I think maybe um, we can just spend a little while going through talking about how we can support each other. Um, mm. So really it's just, from my, my point of view, is to be proactive. We talk a lot about um, offering support, and we will run through the support services that are available if you want to contact anyone for yourself or for your family members. But like just getting in ahead of someone having to stand up and say, I need help. Mm. Like, just, yeah, talk, talking to your family. If something seems wrong, even if something doesn't seem wrong, just reminding someone that you are available to them to listen and to to help them debrief and sort their thoughts out um, would be something really valuable to do all the time, but, but now <laughs> in particular, I suppose. Definitely. Yeah, I don't know. What are your thoughts? I think there needs to also be a very big effort to not rush and delegitimise any stories that come out of this. So, mm. for example, we're talking about a little bit about the Andrew Bolt coverage and just oh my God. its um, negativity towards this, this, this issue. This issue yeah. is massive for a lot of people, mm. and so we really don't need people, naysayers or, or, or people trying to tear apart the trials of what's happening yeah, right yeah. now. They just need to run their natural course. Yeah. Justice will be served, whatever. Yeah. And that's true I for the media in general, but it's also for our conversations. Yeah, I think for our conversation, yeah. it's just important to keep it really healthy and really aware that other people might be going through situations that yeah. you don't know yeah, about. Absolutely. And, you know, you don't need to critique or probe or strip away at that. Yeah, just listen for a bit. Yeah. And I think it can help if, you know, most people are sort of not sure what um, support services available yeah, out there yeah, if, if they want more information, you know, um, in in their state. Uh, I think uh, there's an uh, organisation called reachout.com which have some information about where you can get, you know, especially if you're a victim of sexual abuse. But, yeah, it falls into that whole mental health con- issue as well, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Like mm-hmm. at the moment in the mainstream media there's this huge focus about people taking drugs in AFL and some of them sort of talking about using mental health to not be tested and avoiding having the drug testers come in because right, okay. they're, they're, but mental health isn't related to drugs you don't mm. necessarily have to have had drugs to have a mental health issue in a sense you sure. know so everybody okay. experiences different Definitely. things um, but in this instance yeah there are a lot of people who need as much support as possible. And then you yeah. say there are a lot of naysayers out there who are just making comments, but they might not have mm. a full grasp of, of the situation. The situation. Yeah, yeah. I know I don't. Yeah. You know. Let's not def- offer too much latitude to people like Andrew Bolt. I just think they're anti-human. But, um, but anyway, uh, so, so who can we, if, if you have some sort of, um, if this brings up th- things for you in your past and you really need to talk to someone immediately, um, uh, if you're if you're in uh, an emergency situation, for example, if you feel like something's really happening, call triple yeah. zero. Um, that's that they're people who you can call. Otherwise, you can call. Uh, uh, there's the suicide callback service at one three hundred six five nine four six seven. That's one three hundred six five nine four six seven. And and there's lots of services obviously available in your area. I know most of the victims. 
um, in this situation started in Ballarat. So if you're in the regional area, you know, mm. it might be, you might think there's no support services, but things like the Ballarat Centre Against Sexual Assault is one that you mm-hmm. can contact, mm-hmm. and they're always there. Um, and then obviously interstate, you've got, you know, Respond, um, who are a national body, the After Hours Crisis Line at 131611. Sorry, can you say the name of that organisation again, please? Uh, the, there's the After Hours Crisis Care, mm-hmm. which is 131611, and then there's Respond, who are 1-800-998-187. Um, so that's respond.org.au. There's about seven pages, and essentially it's about supporting you, uh, and it's uh, called No More, and it's free legal help to navigate the Royal Commission that's been happening to s- sexual assault as well. Thanks for that. Um, do we have yeah. anything to talk about very quickly before we move on? Um, no, we might leave it for the end of the show, I believe. Yeah. So okay. we, I believe, Will, you've brought in a clip for us to listen to, haven't you? I have, yeah. So this was a forum that happened not very long ago. Actually, it was the 23rd of February. Um, and I'm just trying to bring up the details on my phone. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't wasn't that long ago. It was run by the UNSW, and it was called the Global Water Institute Future of the Mari Darling Basin Public Forum. We all know about the um, about the crisis that's mm. unfolding across the, the Mari Darling. I don't think it's too much to call it a crisis when <laughs> fish are so lethargic that you can capture them with your hands. And in other cases, we have mass deaths of yeah. fish um, yeah. in the Mari Darling. And so this is a this was a forum hosted just this past Saturday by the UNSW Global Water Institute. They were talking about solutions. They were talking about things to fix the crisis. And a gentleman stands up. His name's Bruce Shillingsworth. I'll let him introduce himself. Um, but he had something to say, and I think it's all worth us listening in. So uh, let's uh, let's listen in. Thanks, everyone. My name's Bruce Shillingsworth. I'm from a town called Bawarana, northwestern New South Wales. I just want to thank the panel, the representatives here today, and I want to thank the audience for coming, because you were so concerned about the issues that affect our lives. And I want seven minutes to talk about (laughs) some of the stuff that I want to talk about. (laughs) I felt that it's appropriate for for an Indigenous person to get up and speak, so thank you. Um, There's three things I'd like to talk about. Three quotes that my elders has, has told me or spoken to me when I was a young child. We call it campfire politics. And it's a long, long time ago. Now, as you believe, the average of people living in this continent for over 80,000 years, they got a lot of understanding, a lot of knowledge of the environment we live in. One of the things I like to talk about, one of the quotes that I'll say first, is said, the river is our blood. Without blood, we will die. That's very important. So look at our water today. Look at our river system. People, we've been here for over 230 years. 230 years since colonisation. Look at our environment. Look at the water system. Look at the environment. Look what the mining company is doing to our land. Look what's happening to our animals, becoming extinct. People, wake up. We need to wake up. I want to tell you a story about the river. Now, in Burwana, we've got the fish trap, the ancient fish traps, where we catch fish, stone arrangement in the river. They're holding in the pyramids in Egypt. They're holding in the pyramids in Egypt. How people have been practicing our tradition and culture for a long, long time. 
We have special sites along the river. Special ceremonial sites. The fish traps is one of them. A very sacred site to us. My father is a Murawari man. My mother is a budgety woman. Where Brewarren is located is the people of the Wailwan and Nimpa people. My old people said to me, one day we're going to be squabbling over water. And here we are today, squabbling over water. Who owns it? Who controls it? Who takes it all? Who's not getting any of it? That's where we are today. My old people said that 50, 60 years ago. This is not a mess. This is a disaster. And it's a man-made one. You can blame the drought. You can blame the irrigators. You can blame the big corporations. But we are here now to fix it. We've got to stand up. We're going to have the guts to stand up to politicians to say that we had enough. Bowen Darling River. When the river floods in Brewarana, 100 kilometres up the road north of Brewarana is a place called Warmeringal. They got big water holes, they got springs. When those hot springs come up out of the ground, they know that the Murray Darling is in flood. How do they get that knowledge? Hundreds of 200 kilometres up the road. These, these hot springs would bubble up. And the Aboriginal people, my father's people then, would then venture down to the Darling River in Bawarana with the fish traps, 200 kilometres away. And they would fish and they'd gather and they'd do their ceremonies. In nature there are signals that tell us that these things are going to happen. They knew that this drought was going to happen. We know because we look at some of the animals, if they don't reproduce or have babies, we know the droughts are coming. We know when the ants go up the trees and build their nests, there's going to be flood or rain. Why are you not listening to First Nation people? We have a knowledge that over 80,000 years old. I'm a Muslim, just like my sister over here. She belongs to the land. She's got connection to the land. And she cries when she speaks. And I cry when I speak. So our connection goes through our blood, through our heart. It's where we stamp our feet. Our feet that touches the earth. So the Warren and the Murray Darling Mason is very special, not just to me, but through the Barkindji people, through the Gamaragal people, through the Wiradjuri people, through the Yorta Yorta people, through the Budgety people. All those people is very important. There's another quote that I want to say. The old people have said, the land we live on it's only borrowed from our children. Think about it. The land we live on is only borrowed from our children, children, and the future generation. How are we going to give this back to our children? In what condition? In the condition it's in? No. How responsibility as a nation, as people that live here? We need to fix our problem. Fix the Murray Darling Basin. It's not a political football. 
It's lies we are talking about. People that lives in that area. We got 30% of our Aboriginal people lives in that lives along the river. 30% in the state lives in the Murray Darling Basin. I am going to stand up and talk for my people. It's time now when we stand up. We've had enough. There's one more thing that I'd like to say. There's one more thing I want to say before I leave, and it's seven minutes up, I think. <laughs> if we are perpetrators, if we are contributing to the perpetrators, or if we are contributing to crime, we should be charged with crime. If we are perpetrators, we still need to be accountable. So, my hope is today, and I see the light at the end of the tunnel, we as people, politicians, community members, has the answer. We have got the answer. When are we going to sit down together and have a good conversation or a good yarn? Stop the bullshit! Now it's crap! We have the answer here, look. Thank you. Thank you. And that was Bruce Shillingsworth speaking during question time at the Future of the Murray-Darling Basin Forum last Saturday, which was hosted by the UNSW Global Water Institute. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. We'll be right back after the song. Five... Four, three, two, one. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Celebrate International Women's Day with 3CR. On Friday the 8th of March, we'll bring you 24 hours of non-stop radio by, for and about women. Join 3CR's fabulous women and genderqueer broadcasters as we talk with talented Melbourne musicians, songwriters, storytellers and activists making a difference. Featuring a special live broadcast from the 2019 International Women's Day Rally at the State Library between 5.30 and 6.30pm. For the full day's program, visit our website at 3cr.org.au. International Women's Day 24-hour broadcast, Friday the 8th of March 2019. Tune in at 8.55am, 3CR Digital and streaming at 3cr.org.au. And you're listening to 3CR News. The song we played before was Colours by the Fiddle Tricks and my update to go to the National Folk Festival this year (laughs) for where I heard Fiddle Tricks first. Now, in um, our next interview, we're going to be talking about the US's recent announcement to withdraw from the 1987 treaty. Uh, 
the INF. And for all those who don't know the INF, uh, it was an international, it's an intermediate range nuclear forces treaty that was created in the Reagan Gorbachev administration. Um, and was aimed at kind of eliminating both nations' land-based missile, ballistic missiles, crews, and long-range missiles. So for the end of the 1900s, for a half-decade plagued by kind of international tensions, the arms race, and mutually assured destruction, this agreement really was one of the large landmarks contributing towards the end of the Cold War and demilitarization. Now, 2018 comes around, and the U.S. is suddenly withdrawing from the agreement. Uh, critics are coming up all over the place and trying to discuss whether the agreement was effective, did the arms race ever really slow down, or conversely, now with the U.S.'s withdrawal, if it's about to speed up. We have Tillman Ruff from ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, on the line to discuss further. Uh, good morning, Tillman. Good morning. Good morning. Now, uh, the reason being touted by the U.S.'s withdrawal, uh, for the U.S.'s withdrawal, is uh, Russia's shameless violation of the treaty, which the U.S. flagged last year and provided an ultimatum kind of of compliance, to which Russia hasn't really responded. Do you think this this is a substantial enough uh, justification for leaving the international treaty? No, I don't. I think, as as you've suggested in your introduction, that this degree treaty really signalled the start of the end of the, the first Cold War and it was really a, a landmark agreement and it really happened because of massive public uh, concern and pressure in Europe that um, you know if it came to a war between um, uh, the Soviet Union then and the United States that Russia would be uh, that Europe would be right in the firing line and in fact most of those short and intermediate range missiles if used would land in Europe. So it really was a very important agreement. Mm. The allegations that the Russians have been violating the agreement with um, the development of a, of a cruise missile of the, in the prohibited range has been around for a number of years. Mm-hmm. Um, the Russians have made similar related allegations on the US side that the Aegis-based um, missile defences that the US has deployed in Poland and Romania um, ostensibly, defensively, could be very quickly and easily reconfigured for offensive use, mm-hmm. and that that also they also violate the treaty. Um, the people I trust the most on this, particularly a guy called Ted Postol, who's a professor of uh, physics at MIT and a former nuclear weapons designer, um, assesses that there's veracity in both sets of allegations. Mm-hmm. Um, so under the treaty, there's a special verification commission. Um, that's the mechanism that's provided for in the treaty for any disputes about um, compliance to be addressed. Uh, unfortunately, neither side has activated that, used that mechanism that's in the treaty to resolve uh, such disputes. If they were serious about maintaining the agreement about um, addressing the substance of, of allegations, that would be the logical thing to do. Okay, and I, I suppose that does draw it back to the question because when the INF came in, it was really quite a, uh, a celebrated treaty and it was quite successful. By May 1991, uh, the nations had limited over 2,000 missiles. I'm wondering, do you think uh, we've almost forgotten why it came about in the first place? And uh, from your what you just said, it sounds like Russia and the US don't really care about the mechanisms to try and solve this. They would rather just see the treaty gone. Yeah, well, clearly the U.S. has been the one that, uh, while both sides have made allegations, mm-hmm. uh, the U.S. was clearly the one that first said, we're leaving this treaty. Right. Um, and the Russians, I guess, fairly predictably then followed. 
But yes, this was really a landmark agreement. This eliminated a whole class of short and medium range um, missiles uh, between the United States and Russia. And it did so, you know, so to, as you said, 2,672 missiles were dismantled and destroyed. Mm. And it had very intrusive inspection and verifications provisions with on site um, inspections on both sides. So it was also important more broadly because it showed that you could have an effective um, eliminate a whole class of nuclear weapons and do so verifiably and you know within time so that that was technically feasible um, and it enormously reduced uh, tensions because mm. those weapons not only would have very short range and would have been mainly used in in Europe but they also dramatically increased the chances of nuclear war starting and um, if there's uh, if there's a war that started, the the likelihood of their use would would be significantly higher and, and and lower the nuclear threshold. So, in a sense, those lessons have been forgotten, and it already seems to be mm. happening that both sides uh, have already uh, even before the that they're in the notice period that yeah. that they're going to leave the treaty, but they haven't. You know, the treaty hasn't actually formally ended, but even. Mm. Virtually as soon as they've made those announcements, they seem to be ramping up um, developments that were clearly in the works yeah, um, definitely. that would violate the, the treaty. And the first um, new U.S. nuclear warheads rolled off the production plant at Pantex in Texas uh, in January for the first time in you know for decades that they're producing new new warheads. So it seems like things are already fairly well down the track towards unravelling this and of course the one of the big concerns is not just this agreement but that mm. there's strong talk in in Washington and the general reluctance of the US to abide by you know any international agreements nuclear arms control or otherwise Definitely. um walking away from the Paris agreement the Iran nuclear agreement etc mm. um there's also concern that the new start treaty which is uh, the one that puts constraints on the numbers of long-range weapons, so the intercontinental ballistic missiles and so forth, um, which expires in 2021, is on the blocks now. And the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, which the US has signed but not ratified, Russia has signed and ratified, um, you know, there's talk about the US walking away from that. So this bodes very badly uh, for essentially what looks like basically a new arms race that's ramping up definitely. none of the lessons of the Cold War. Definitely, definitely. And I think touching on that, it sounds like this is such an important treaty, but also just an important symbol for, you know, denuclearization, demilitarization. Um, and um, just responding to some of the, the critiques that come out of this, from the US we've had a lot of, like, um, academics come out and say like, stuff like the... the the treaty offered up unilateral constraints and, you know, basically arguments along the line of if Russia's going to create weapons, we should be able to as well. Um, and talking also with this trend of the Trump administration to be withdrawing from kind of weapons treaties and stuff like that, do you think we really should be afraid of entering into this new kind of, this new decade of international tensions and potentially a really serious arms race? Look, I think so. Unfortunately, there's not a lot on the the nuclear front that that's going well um, yeah. I mean all of the nuclear armed states in fact all states under the non-proliferation treaty under the 
um, the judgment of the International Court of Justice are obliged not just to negotiate nuclear disarmament in good faith, but actually can complete those negotiations. Um, however, we have essentially no disarm, with the possible exception of the, the summit between the US and, and North Korea that's starting um, today, uh, you know, with no promise, of no course, promise. talk is better than threat. Um, and but sorry to interrupt you, but isn't nothing it... Nothing in the bag yet. Isn't um, it completely hypocritical, sorry to interrupt you, um, but isn't it completely hypocritical of the US to remove itself from an international nuclear arms treaty, or at least an inter- uh, a military treaty, and then use the publicity stunt of a, you know, a Korea meetup and talking about denuclearization? Like, don't, isn't that completely two-faced? Yes, it seems very inconsistent mm. and confusing, and the, the, the sharpest sort of relevance for the the possible outcomes from the Korean US, North Korean US summit is is the Iran agreement. I mean, that was really a very significant achievement. That put the most stringent constraints Mm. on a national nuclear program that any agreement, uh, any country has ever accepted Mm. under any agreement with the most intrusive 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, in-country International Atomic Energy Agency inspector presence and really Mm -hmm. state-of-the-art remote and sensor monitoring um, of Iran's nuclear facilities, um, which... The International Atomic Energy Agency has certified now at least nine times yeah. that Iran is living up to that, its commitments under its that commitments. agreement. Mm. That agreement actually provides the best model for what would be ideal to achieve in the North Korean context. So for the US to have abandoned that um, makes it much more difficult and less likely that of a successful outcome with, with the rapprochement, the talks with, with North Korea. So yes, it's, it's entirely inconsistent. Essentially, the trend seems to be we want no constraints. We're going for military superiority. You know, this forlorn um, idea that in the nuclear era that could mean anything meaningful. Mm. Um, and basically, we're back to back to a Cold War, and the UN Secretary General has said as much. And, and Tillman, does, um, you know, the fact that there might not be a treaty, does that mean that we could see, uh, um, I guess, a new missile superpower or countries wanting to be, you know, the dominant um, missile power? Yes, I think so. And and for North Korea, um, you know, they've obviously got a a lot of attention um, and, in a sense, access, you know, to be taken seriously and and Mm. be negotiated with at this level. Um, in large part because they have nuclear weapons. You know, that mm. sends a very perverse signal to other nations, some of whom might draw from the Iraq or Libyan experience that, you know, the best um, way to protect yourself from from regime change uh, externally conducted is, you know, would be to have nuclear weapons. Mm. Um, and, yes, there's the one hopeful sign that... Um, the really good thing that's happened in the in the world in the last few years in the nuclear space is the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which was for the first time provides a comprehensive prohibition uh, on nuclear weapons, the worst of all weapons mm-hmm. of mass destruction, and the last to be subjected to a clear treaty prohibition. And it also provides a pathway for all states to to fulfil that commitment to get rid of nuclear weapons, whether they have or or, or don't have them. And there's no there hasn't really been any mention of that. It could actually provide a really effective circuit breaker and tool to resolve the Korean situation. 
because in all of the talk about Korean denuclearization, almost all of it um, is focused on getting rid of North Korea's nuclear mm-hmm. weapons. But Definitely. there are military forces in South Korea that assist U.S. nuclear weapons. There mm-hmm. are nuclear weapons launch platforms of the U.S. You know, in the seas off Korea, in Japan, in Guam. Um, bombers and so forth, missiles. So denuclearization, if you're serious about it, um, is is about much more than just North Korea's weapons. You know, there's no right hands for the wrong weapons. And, and if we're going to have a durable regime that's going to get us safer, it really needs to deal with all of the nuclear weapons that are around and, and work for their elimination and not just those in certain hands. Definitely. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you, Tom. And I think you make a brilliant point when you point out that um, within this, at least the INF, it was very much definitely um, the US uh, initiating this and the global trend that we are seeing moving towards a kind of a Cold War of sorts or an arms race is really quite terrifying, as well as the point of, you know, the, these weapons are already in construction. So it's more of us whipping the sheet off at this point. Um, as they, as America begins to withdraw from the treaty, then suddenly beginning a new kind of creation or anything like that. So thank you very much for coming on the show and discussing this topic. Um, we'll have to kind of watch this, and I think you you key it pretty well. If you're serious about denuclearization, um, what should activists be kind of seeking out to do to fight this? Against this? Well, I think the the most promising tool that we have, really the most, the best opportunity for. Uh, for progress is the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Um, It really does provide currently the only defined pathway that's accessible to all all countries to to achieve and sustain a a world free of nuclear weapons. Currently 70 countries have signed it. Uh, 22 have now ratified it with uh, South Africa's very welcome ratification that came uh, just on Friday. Um, So it will need 50 uh, states ratifying it before it enters into force. Um, every country that's serious about nuclear disarmament um, should sign that treaty, uh, including Australia. The Australian government has been opposing that treaty. It was one of the first to say we wouldn't be signing it. Um, Labor at their national conference in December made a welcome commitment to sign the treaty when, mm. when in government. Um, so I think locally that's probably the most important uh, work that we can do, particularly as we have a national election coming up uh, sometime in or before May, mm. uh, to get Australia on the right side of history and, and really strengthen the promising international law that really does essentially what we've already agreed is the best way forward for other indiscriminate weapons, landmines, cluster munitions, biological and chemical weapons, all of which um, have treaties that prohibit them that Australia has signed and in some cases been a leader on. Wonderful. Well, that sounds like a great start. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, it was Thank fantastic you. talking to you. Bye-bye. And that was uh, Tillman Ruff speaking on the uh, significance of the INF. Mm-hmm. And I guess the, the treaty itself. Uh, you are listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. We're going to play a song right now. Uh, the song is War. What is it good for? Do I need to tell you who it's by? Yeah, Dave Bowie. <laughs> we'll be right back. Indigenous people in Australia and the Pacific have borne the brunt of nuclear testing. And this was not done unconsciously. We found documents in the British archives 
saying that, yes, there is uh, certain hazards, but only to primitive peoples, those that don't wear clothes and don't wash, unlike us British. So the sort of racism inherent in this whole operation was known and understood from the beginning that these were the casualties of a larger imperial policy and that they were able to bear the brunt because there were very small populations and didn't have much political voice. And as we fast forward to today, we see that same thing. 3CR, keeping you informed about Australia's nuclear past and present. At such a time, it's important to have a voice like 3CR, steady, constant, sane and committed to a nuclear-free Australia. If you share the growing concern about racism, fascism and the move to the extreme right, come along to our forum on a Bill of Rights for Australia on Sunday the 17th of March at the Unitarian Church, 110 Gray Street, East Melbourne, commencing at 11am. Speakers include Professor Gillian Triggs, Professor Rob Watts, Julian Burnside QC and the Human Rights Law Centre. RSVP to admin at melbourneunitarian.org.au Our democratic rights are under threat. If you care, be there. The Melbourne Unitarian Peace Memorial Church is a 3CR supporter. You're on 855 AM 3CR. Uh, a few days ago, uh, $7.4 million um, was allocated to a network to streamline aged care access. Um, and as part of that, what is going to happen is there's going to be a aged care system navigator trial and Housing for the Aged Action Group, HARG, are going to participate in the trial. And so what Housing for the Aged Action Group is, uh, they are the only Australian organisation specialising in the housing needs for older people, uh, coming from grassroots beginning um, over 30 years ago. And HARG today has over 200 members. And joining us today to talk about the Aged Care Systems Navigator trial, we are joined by Fiona York, who is the Executive Officer of HAR. Good morning, Fiona. Good morning. Thanks for joining us again on 3CR. We always enjoy having a chat. Great. Um, so you, you, you were pleased to announce a couple of days ago that you were joining this uh, 18-month national trial led by CODA Australia. And I guess its aim and uh, the deliverable outcomes, what, what are they and what, what made you guys decide to join up? Yeah, so a few years ago, um, the federal government decided to change the way that um, aged care was accessed for older people um, to an online system and to um, a national kind of helpline that you could dial into. Um, so anybody in Australia that wanted aged care needed to be able to call My Aged Care or log onto a website called My Aged Care. Um, and the idea of that was to streamline all of the aged care services across the country, but of course, as we know, working with people that have problems accessing the internet and maybe don't know how to navigate the system, they might not be able to get aged care because of that. So um, the government's acknowledged that there is a problem for people who are um, who have barriers to access, like language or being homeless, um, or are vulnerable for another reason. And so they've started these trials across the country to see how, see what different ways. Um, different people in different places can use to help vulnerable older people 
get the, get the aged care that they need. And so, yeah, that's that's what we're doing. I notice that the the, the three the trial itself consists consists of three trial programs, which is uh, some information hubs, uh, some community hubs, and also nine specialist support workers. Is this really all sort of more about a push to? Um, you know, have a person-centred care more so than an online um, service. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pro- it's it's a it's not enough. Obviously, like it's a bit of a band-aid solution. But mm. I think the reason that we and we did struggle with the decision about whether to get involved, but we decided that it was important to get involved because the government needs to know that face-to-face services are really important for older people that are that have um, you know that maybe aren't wealthy and um, internet savvy and have all of the access to the choice and and all those things that the aged care system um, needs for, for you to be able to access it so we wanted to really show look we need to have face-to-face services we need to have trusted services and we need to have things that you know suit older people not just expect everybody in the country to be able to get online and, and sort it out so that's why we decided to get involved because we wanted to do this trial, which is 18 months, and it's going to be evaluated independently. And hopefully, by participating, we'll be able to demonstrate the need to have services like ours that are in the community, um, able to help people that can't can't get access to the service. So, the target group for us is older people at risk of homelessness, mm. and we also have um, lots of bilingual educators who will be delivering information in first languages. So we think that's really important as well. And we know, obviously, that aged care, uh, the aged care system itself, it's um, quite complex and difficult to navigate. And when, I guess, people hear aged care, uh, I get the feeling that people think about elderly people being in nursing home. But, you know, yeah. the role that you play in delivering your services for elderly people um, struggling with housing is quite important, you know. And I guess a 90-year-old in the top end of Australia is going to have very different access support needs to a 70-year-old in inner city Melbourne if they're both looking for housing. Yeah, that's right. And and the the push for government for a while, and, and we support this, is to keep people at home as well as possible. Mm. So nobody, nobody really wants to end up in residential care. And so when we're talking about aged care, we're talking about things like shopping assistance and help with around the house and things like that to enable people to stay... Um, where they're living in their community and even accessing that back, you know, a few years ago you used to be able to go down to local government to um, to the people that you knew um, and say these are the sorts of things I need and someone would come out to the home and talk to you about what you needed and then you'd be able to get those services in at a low cost. These days for people to get that you have to call my aged care and so what we're doing is trying to bridge the gap between people that, you know, maybe not be able to just pop down to the local government and get those services in. And so, yeah, I think it's really important to acknowledge that we do need these additional services. And there's around 60 different agencies across the country that are participating in this trial. There's about eight in Victoria. So we're joining a really big network and each each trial site, each information hub, um, which is what we will be, is different according to the local community. And I think that's another thing that's really important as well, having services that are different according to the needs of the people who live in that place. And, and I think you, t- you touched on it um, before in terms of, you know, uh, people who are especially living in insecure housing or speak a language other than English. I know, I think in June last year, 
uh, Robin Scott, the Multicultural Affairs um, Minister, had an announced significant funding increase for interpreter services in Victoria. Um, does that then make your job a little bit easier with being able to provide a service like that, or do you then have to reach out to organisations, you know, to collaborate and work together to offer these services? Yeah, well, we worked a few years ago. We worked with the Ethnic Communities Council of Victoria, and we did a project um, to work with different cultural communities about raising awareness of housing issues and since then we have over half of our clients from culturally diverse backgrounds and we use interpreters every day. We have a team of um, bilingual peer educators who go out and deliver community information in the language of, of the people that they're speaking to which is so important and it's not just about language either, it's about culture and trust and the barrier that people experience in trying to access mainstream services in mm-hmm. terms of, is this for me? Can I tell people about my problems? If I'm having issues with my family, do I trust this person to be able to keep my information safe? And so that's why it's so important to have bilingual educators. And, and this trial that we're doing is going to be using those bilingual educators as well. Mm-hmm. So we'll be training them to explain the aged care system to older people in the community, which is so, so important. And, and it is, you know, my family used to own nursing homes, you know, as I say, in the good old days before it became a business. And when, when you sort of um, look at the situation that elderly Australians find themselves in, it's quite, a, a, as I said, quite complex and very, very difficult to navigate. So in terms of these trials, um, you know, existing with assistance offered by organisations such as yours, and you mentioned that, uh, Australian Healthcare Association associates are going to have a, 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 an independent uh, reform, sorry, an independent report which might sort of inform future policy. What do you expect to sort of see at the end of this? Because I think it concludes uh, October 2019. Yeah, uh, no, next year, 2020. 2020. Yeah, so it's quite a long trial. Um, I'm really hoping that we can demonstrate that there's a need for it and that this kind of thing works. Um, so we're, we're really wanting it to work, even though it's a bit of, it's going to be a challenge. Mm. We have to train a lot of our bilingual educators and our peer educators and we're going to be doing home visits and visits to the office as well for people. So we're not just going to be relying on over the phone support. Um, some of the other hubs will be doing over the phone support as well, which is yeah. great and, and using a lot, relying on a lot of volunteers, which is a bit, it's a bit rough really. Like, um, this, this is a skilled set of um, services that need to be delivered and, and unfortunately the money is so little that you have to rely on volunteers, which I don't think is a great model. But having said that, I think it's important that we do demonstrate we need more tailored support for older people. We need it in the first language and we need it to be in the community. So, yeah, we're hoping that it will demonstrate the need and then hopefully maybe change the system a little bit to make it more appropriate for vulnerable older people. Yeah, and and if people want to find out more, they can obviously go to oldertenants.org.au to to find out some more, but they can also uh, go to the the COTA website to find out. Is that correct? Yeah, COTA Victoria is one of the partners in Mm. this too. So, yeah, check um, out that. We appreciate you joining us on 3CR Fiona and and keep up the great work. I know um, know, it's always good to to get some uh, updates on on where you are as well with uh, Housing for the Aged Action Group. Anytime, thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast, where we're just figuring out how to press the buttons. Yep. You folks have a great day. Um, keep listening. <laughs> we'll be right back. If we're off. This is East Bay Ray from Dead Kennedys. You're listening to Community Radio 3CR, 855 kHz on your AM dial. Have an orgasm for Christ. Lord is coming. 
the landlord is coming. Do you want more hag in your life? The Housing for the Age Action Group show is changing time slot and will be coming to you twice a month from 5.30 to 6 o'clock on the second and fourth Wednesday of the month here on 3CR. That means twice as much news and information about older people's housing issues, including public housing, tenants' rights, housing activism, retirement villages and caravan parks, elder abuse and family violence, aged care, welfare rights, the cost of living, and housing issues for older people with disabilities from culturally diverse backgrounds, LGBTI elders, and other groups in the community. And we'll be hearing from the real experts on older people's housing, older older people people themselves. themselves. So tune in for The Hag Show, 5.30 to 6 on the second and fourth Wednesday of the month, starting March 13th, here on 3CR. Brunswick Music Festival, back for two weeks this March, featuring international acts, Flohio, Jay Mascus and Snail Mail, plus an epic local contingent including Jazz Party, The Necks, A Swayze and the Ghosts, The Murlocs, Tando, Jade Imagine, Sophie Grophy, Genesis Owusu, Beck Sandridge, Hexdet, and so much more. For the full program and tickets, head to brunswickmusicfestival.com.au. Brunswick Music Festival is a 3CR supporter. Marxism 2019 is Australia's biggest socialist conference, taking place this Easter long weekend from April the 18th to the 21st in Melbourne. Marxism 2019 features international and local guest speakers, including award-winning author and activist Baruz Buchani. Join over 1,000 activists for crucial discussions on how to resist the rise of the right and rebuild the left. With more than 100 sessions, tickets start at just $35 and are available at marxismconference.org. A 3CR supporter. And you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Now we're going to talk about Parents Next. What's Parents Next? Um, if you don't know... It's supposedly a support service for parents with children under six who get the parenting payment, and it's supposed to help you, the parent, with your study and work goals. But it's actually been causing people a lot of grief. It has a number... It's it's a system by which you have to follow a certain set of rules in order to have your parenting payment continue, and a lot of people have had their payments cut off. And so for that reason, we're speaking to Ella Buckland, who... Um, is a person with lived experience of, of parents, uh, parents next, and is also campaigning um, uh, to either have it end or become voluntary. Um, you there, Ella? Hi, everyone. Hello. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Now you're actually in town for the Senate inquiry. Can you tell us about what's happening? I am. Um, it starts at well, I'm on at 10:45 uh, this morning. And um, I'm going to talk about, obviously, all of my issues with Parents Next. And then um, before that, we're doing a petition delivery. So my petition's got 34,000 signatures, and we're going to deliver that to a couple of MPs. Wonderful. And that's 34,000 people who are voicing their objection to this compulsory uh, system of sort of boxes that you have to check you have to what are, what are the the things that parents next is requiring 
and forcing parents to do if they want to keep their pa- parenting payment? Well, it's things like swimming lessons, taking a child to story time, um, yeah, writing CVs. You can do job applications uh, for one hour a week. Um, just arbitrary activities that mostly uh, don't help people find work. And can you can you see this ever being helpful if it's a um, a system by which the providers are incentivized to get you to check the boxes? There's no pr- incentive directly given to parents. Um, is is that the fundamental issue behind it? What's the what what do you see as the main issue behind Parents Next? Well, there are many many issues, but I guess with the incentives, because the providers are incentivized with cash bonuses um, when a woman's been on their caseload uh, for a certain amount of time, um, the providers are then not giving women exemptions when exemptions are required. So a woman will go to the GP, her GP, and say, look, you know, all of this stuff's going on in my life, and the, the GP will write a letter and take it into her parents' next provider, and the parents' next provider will say, it doesn't seem that bad, I'm not going to give you an exemption, and then this woman really has no recourse. Ella, um, I've just read your story, and obviously you talk about... Uh, Parents Next not being around back in 2014, you're there today to sort of, you know, put your point across. Have you spoken to other mothers who might have been on a different program to Parents Next before and have they said whether one system, I'm not sure whether Centrelink was providing it, or this was better? Um, Well, I was referring in 2014, I was sort of going through a massive reshuffle of my life, becoming Mm. a sole parent. So I don't really know what the systems were back then, but I think that um, Parents Next was rolled out as a compulsory measure last year. And um, all the women I've heard from are speaking out against the sort of current model of Parents Next and, you know, its punitive compliance system. Hi, it's Arun here. Um, I just... Uh, we had a, someone from the Single Mothers Foundation come on a few weeks ago, and she, we were talking about how kind of patronising the Parents Next kind of program is. I mean, with your mention of having to do arbitrary tasks like uh, ticking certain boxes in order to be, to be given, you know, um, the Parent Next program support, and also this idea of demerit points and um, the, the system of punishment that's laid out, do you think we need to change the overall tone of the welfare that's being rolled out, and how do you think we'd, what, what tone do you think that would need to be? Well, personally, I think that, um, you know, not only Parents Next, but a lot of sort of structural um, programs devalue the work that parents are already doing in the home. Mm. And um, it's a really sexist program. You know, that they're, they're implying that, you know, women are just sitting around on holiday mm. getting their money and they're just doll bludgers when, in fact, you know, parenting's the hardest job I've ever done. And um, I, I think that, you know, idealistically, I would like um, parenting to be valued as an actual sort of contribution to society. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Absolutely. Now, um, you you raised the the point that Parents Next is incredibly punitive. Like, um, we know we we sort of have an idea now of the boxes that need to be checked, and the arbitrary nature in which your parenting payment can get cut off. Um, before we ask about the consequences of this, can I ask, do we have an idea of how many people have had payments cut off due to failure of uh, to comply with Parents Next? 
Um, I think the figures between July and December was uh, 16,000 parents wow. received the payment suspension. So this is, all, you know, mostly women. 96% of people and parents next to women, mm-hmm. and and they obviously all have young children. So that has huge consequences for families, particularly children, um, which I find I don't even know how they're doing this. Mm, absolutely, and so the so the consequence, you have your parenting payment cut off. Um, I've heard stories about people who have had to go without anything but basic food for for the whole weekend because the staff don't get back in on Mondays. Just what what are you hearing from from other people on Parents Next um, about the fear that they have of having their payments cut off, and also the 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 result of having their payments um, cut off or suspended? Well, women are obviously terrified, but parents are terrified that, you know, they're not going to be able to... Well, where I, where I live is near Nimbin in New South Wales, and a lot of people don't have access to uh, internet, um, they don't have access to cars, they're not living in, you know, the kind of accommodation that you would expect living in a town or a, a city. Um, and these people are struggling to get their children to whatever activity it is, uh, and then they're also struggling to log on and report their attendance at whatever the activity is. Um, so I, I get... Uh, and then there's other women who... Uh, I heard from a woman not long ago, and she'd had a baby the day before, uh, and she'd missed a phone call from Centrelink about Parents Next, and they had cut her off. Um and she was left with no money and a one-day-old baby. And it's those are the stories. Like, that, that's not one. That's, I've, I've had about three women with newborns who've been cut off. And where do you attribute this? Well, it's cruel, cruelty. Is it um, embedded within our welfare system? Does it change with governments? Like, what's your view as someone who has really had to take a step back and look at our welfare system and at the parenting payment? Um, yeah, where do you where do you see things coming from? Well, I, I mean, I think that you know the patriarchy really sort of is in everything, and um, you know if we don't keep a check on it, then these kind of programs become law, and and then you know obviously more women and children suffer as a result of of their ideology. Absolutely, um, thank you for that. Um, so. We are looking forward to the, um, the Senate inquiry that's happening today at 8.30. We're going to hear, um, oh, the, the Senate is going to, inquiry is going to hear from the National Council of Single Mothers and Their Children. Uh, what, what are you hoping to come from the inquiry today? Well, I'm hoping that the program at least becomes voluntary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to call out a couple of people who've been particularly disgusting during this process. Um, and, you know, I hope the Department of Jobs and Small Business um, get what's coming to them, really. Mm, absolutely. Um, I did want to talk just briefly about um, your Freedom of Information request and to what the Department of um, Jobs and Small Business had done. So you're, you're an activist on the Parents Next um, issue and the damage that Parents Next does t- to families. And um, as a result of that, they wrote a, wrote a dossier about you. Is that right? <laughs> they wrote lots of things about me. Um, they, in my FOI, I found that, I, and we don't know, it's not confirmed whether or not they were um, 
searching for my name specifically. They seem to talk around, you know, when someone tags parents next, then um, then we get a report, a social media report. But that's unconfirmed. So they were prof- profiling me. They had uh, copies of my tweets. But then the most troubling thing was that they were sharing internal emails about the allegations I made last year in the media about an MP. And it was sort of um, lunchtime media, you know, emails. It was just disgusting. Yeah, and it just seems to stem essentially from this hideous woman-hating kind of patriarchy. <laughs> yeah, um, sorry, like, yeah, sorry to, um, anyway. Uh, so, yeah, and so, do you, I mean, it doesn't seem like it'll change necessarily with the government. It's, it's a social illness that's embedded deeply into our public service, into the approach that we take to social welfare. Is there, sorry to be so grim, but is there hope? Uh, I hope so. <laughs> um, my, you know, if I, in a perfect world, if someone paid me to do work, I would go for uh, enshrining parenting in legislation somehow. Uh, and I think that that would go a long way in, in protecting people who wanted to be parents or who were forced into being parents. Uh, and I think, I mean, that's obviously since becoming a sole parent, uh, I've been exposed to the sort of full range of, of what that means in regards to, to welfare and social security and um, access to employment. Uh, so that would be what I want to do. So I guess there is hope if there are still people out there pushing for change. And Ella, how good would it be to see all the taxpayer money spent on political party advertising, I guess, put to good use on funding Centrelink as a start? Mm. Well, why not a universal base income, you know? Let's mm. just get rid of Centrelink, let's get rid of pensions, let's get rid of parenting payments single, let's just pay everyone, you know, 20 grand a year or whatever it works out that we can afford and then everyone gets it and no one's going, oh, these people are, you know, getting this money from us and because everyone's getting it. Uh, just To me, that would solve a lot of these problems. Right on. Um, thank you, Ella, for joining us. Now, before I let you go, I do want to talk very quickly about the... Um, I mean, there's going to be a rally later in the day that's um, sort of supported by the Australian Unemployed Workers Union in support of, um, of people campaigning against parents next in support of you coming down to Melbourne. Um, can we talk about the, the survey just quickly? Because I know that you're, you're about to submit it today, but uh, people can still sign it. Is that right? Oh, the petition, yes. The petition, people sorry. still sign it. Yes. Um, yes, but still ongoing. So yeah. Please go and sign the petition. We need more. Beautiful. How do we access it? Should we just find you on Twitter, or um, what's what's the best oh, way to get to it's it? It's on change.org, and it's just um, make parents next voluntary. Absolutely. So, folks, if you want to go onto Google, for example, and you wanted to search for the survey, you could just search for the Australian Government Make Parent ne- Parents Next Voluntary. You'll be able to find it that way. I've been speaking to Ella Buckland, who is a activist um, against Parents Next and um, speaker of truths about the damages that it does to, to families who are forced onto the program. Ella, thank you so much for your time today, and best of luck with the Senate inquiry. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Ella. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. We'll be right back. Hello, this is Archie Roach, and you're listening to Good Music on 855am on 3CR. 
Have you heard about the Melbourne International Electric Vehicle Expo? Find out what's happening with electric cars, bikes, skateboards, scooters, trucks and more. The event is being held at the Melbourne International Karting Complex in Todd Road, Port Melbourne on Saturday, March 16th. Come along and experience what it's like to drive or ride an electric vehicle. Attend focus seminars and tech talks. To find out more, go to evexpo.org.au or find us on Facebook. The Melbourne Electric Vehicle Expo is a 3CR supporter. Let the mythical Tarantula bite you at the 2019 Taranta Festival. Five days of Southern Italian and Mediterranean music, food and culture from March 13 to 17. Including the exclusive Melbourne concert by the 2018 Songlines Music Awards Best Group in the World, Candoniere Greganico Salentino, direct from Italy via Adelaide, at the Thornbury Theatre, Friday, March 15. The festival includes talks, workshops, concerts and parties. For information and tickets, visit tarantafestival.com.au Presented by Devella, Patricia Astor. You're listening to 3CR Radio. By the way, that sounded like a fantastic community <laughs> event going on. Uh, so definitely, get, I'm definitely going to get down to that. And you should too, if you're interested. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, for our last interview today, we're going to be looking at the mining da- giant Adani, which is just who has just been called out for their second license breach since starting work around the Great Barrier Reef since about 2017, allowing coal-contaminated water to overflow from their port at Abbott Point into Cali Valley. Our conservation groups across Australia have come out swinging against the company. So we have Christian on the line from uh, the Australian Conservation uh, Society here this morning. Good morning. Um, Christian, could you explain what effect does coal-contaminated water have on Cali Valley and surrounding environments? Mm, It's a good question. Uh, I might just start with a little brief bit of context in terms of what has happened up on on the Cali Valley wetlands. So Mm -hmm. as many of your listeners would be um, familiar, Adani own a coal port, the Abbott Point Coal Terminal, and that's where they export um, coal from a large number of other Queensland coal mines, um, and it's where they intend to export the coal from the Carmichael coal mine. That port is sited right next to Green Park, and it's also situated right next to a nationally listed um, and nationally important wetland, the Cayley Valley wetland. Sorry, you're breaking up there, Christian, but am I right in hearing that the spill was right next to a nationally protected wetland? That's right. The Cayley Valley wetlands are listed in Australian environmental law as a nationally important wetland, mm-hmm. um, and they're also protected under state law as well. And the official statement released by the Adani States was that it released 58 um, MG total suspended solids into sensitive wetlands. In layman's terms, what does that actually translate to? Yeah, what it means is that Adani have released water um, mm-hmm. filled with essentially um, sediment, um, and some of that sediment would be must be coal sediments, given that it's been released from the coal terminal. Um, and they've released that over a spillway into the Cali Valley wetlands. Now, under Adani's environmental authority, which is the state um, conditions that are applied mm-hmm. on the on port, um, Adani are only allowed to release a maximum of 30 milligrams per litre of sediment into the wetlands. Um, and on this occasion, they say that they released 58 milligrams per litre. 
It is important to note, though, that the monitoring um, regime at the port is incredibly poor, and so we don't actually mm. know how much sediment was released into the into the wetlands. We don't know the volume of water, and we don't know whether the 58 milligrams per litre that Adani had reported was, in fact, the peak concentration of sediment that was released. And, of course, we've got to be sceptical, seeing as the last time this, this Adani breach happened, uh, they went to a lot of effort to cover it up. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that there's there's always reason to be sceptical mm. of mining companies being responsible for self-reporting their environmental obligations. Definitely. And certainly, and certainly Adani uh, is a company with a very poor track record, mm. both in Australia and overseas, yep. for doing environmental harm. Definitely, definitely. And referring to the original licence produced from the government uh, for Adani's overall project and scheme, were the limits put in place generous or conservative? Were they Were they actually... Did they, were they, should Adani be able to conduct its affairs without exceeding these uh, licence breaches? Because this is the second breach in, in, you know, two years. It's becoming a commonality. Is it literally just malpractice or is it that the expectations are too tight? Like, what's happening here? Well, I think it's somewhat ironic that in defending the release of cold sediments, um, Adani excused their actions by saying, oh, well, it was during a very high rainfall event. Mm. Um, And, of course, the last, a breach of conditions at Abbott Point when they released coal-laden sludge water, basically, into the into the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park was during Cyclone Debbie. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess the irony in that is that here you have a coal company, and we know that coal is one of the, the lead drivers of climate change, um, defending its actions uh, on the basis of extreme weather events, extreme weather events which are only going to get worse um, as we burn more coal and create more climate change. Definitely, definitely. And just referring back to that previous breach, um, last year they received they released coal contaminated water that exceeded accepted level. Oh, sorry, that exceeded accepted levels by over eight hundred percent. These are crazy breaches. Um, how are we not? You know, how is court? How are the federal courts not responding to this faster? Mm. Well, so the prosecution um, of that former breach is currently underway mm-hmm. in, in the Queensland. Uh, magistrate's court, as I understand it, and that prosecution is being led by the state government. In relation to the latest um, breach, the state government will have to make a decision as to whether to prosecute, um, you know, sometime in the near future. But I do understand they've they've issued, uh, introduced to Adani, and that's essentially uh, a letter of demand asking Adani to explain why um, the, the pollution incident happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they can't explain themselves, then presumably the state government will take enforcement action against them. And I suppose uh, one of the big questions I, I have, because I'm very bad with understanding the science behind and the, the pollution behind it, but with this environmental damage just accumulating and uh, continuing, as it seems, how fast is the area and the wetlands around this area going to deteriorate? Uh, I think you've hit the nail on the head with that question, and the answer is we don't know because mm-hmm. the monitoring there is so poor. Um, wow. And to be honest, uh, the, the fact that you can authorise a coal port to be built next to a nationally important wetland that's home to you know dozens of migratory bird species, um, and that 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 coal port can be continually polluting the wetlands, and then um, for really us to not know what the harm is on that site is a travesty. Definitely, definitely. And I do hope um, with this breach that we see a little bit more of a 
sort of punishment towards them. I know, as you mentioned, they did have uh, the suggestion of having a fine net last year of about $3.8 million, but that ended up just being a penalty of about $12,000. So we really need to see something more than just a smack on the wrist sort of thing that we've been seeing. Um, where do activists need to go to kind of get involved with this? Because it obviously needs a drastic call to action. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, look, the Adani coal mine is obviously one of the biggest environmental campaigns in Australian history. It's going to be a huge feature of the next election, which is mm-hmm. shaping up to be fought uh, around climate change. Um, and if people want to get involved, they should go to the Australian Conservation Foundation's website, www.acf.org.au, and join up our community campaign to make this election the climate election. Fantastic. And I, yeah, I'd just like to thank you so much for coming on. The Australian Conservation Foundation does so much sustained work in these sorts of advocacy roles, and I yeah, really appreciate you sharing your perspective here today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Wonderful. Thank you. Bye. So, Will, just a quick update on that Adani thing. Mm-hmm. Done a little bit more research uh, of outside of this. Oh, yeah. If people are interested in finding out Adani's absolutely shocking uh, track record, both environmentally mm. and just generally as a company, uh, oh, yeah. you can go to https uh, semicolon forward slash adanifiles.com.au. You could just search adanifiles.com.au. <laughs> yeah, or you um, could just do that. Um, but it's, it's a fantastic little website and it's got all cited uh, um, resources, but it's just got step-by-step step the things that Adani's been doing here internationally and just as a company. And it's shocking. absolutely shocking and horrible, yeah. And you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. We're one of the few outlets in Melbourne that sort of puts stories right like this front and centre. Mm. It's a fantastic radio station, not to <laughs> toot our own horn too much. <laughs> Have you considered, listener, subscribing? To 3CR Community Radio. Mm-hmm. You know that we had a subscriber drive not too long ago, um, feeding Radical Radio. You know you can still subscribe, even though subscriber drive has ended. Mm-hmm. Um, you can subscribe online through our website, 3cr.org.au slash subscribe. Or you can call during business hours, and this is only for ca- credit card payments only. Um, our business hour phone number is 94198377. That's 9419. 8377. Uh, also, you can visit 3CR during business hours. Our address is 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, and that can be a cash credit or check. But how much is a subscription? Yeah, so if you're a student like me or a concession or pension, it's only $35. It's $75 if you are waged and $150 if you're solidarity. So that's just $35 for a concession or pension, 75 waged and 150 for a solidarity subscription. Absolutely, and we don't ask you for your concessional pension card. Don't worry about no, that. No. Come as you are. Um, if you value community radio and you have the bucks, no worries if you don't, but if you do have $35, bring it to 3CR mm. and support Radical Radio. Definitely. Um, and the thing is that this is community radio. This is made for the people. Yeah. Um, and I have conversations with people where I'm like, mm. yeah, I was talking to this person. They're kind of like, you get to talk to this person? It's like, yes, because yeah. we get to as everyday members of our society, invite people in, talk to them, Mm. and you are invited into that conversation. Uh, We in the studio would always love to hear from you, so you feel free to SMS or Mm. ring in, because it really is a community radio station for the people. And as a community radio station, um, I just want to share how I got involved. Mm. Um, I walked in the door (laughs) one day. I just walked in, and I said, I really love 3CR, I'd love to contribute as a programmer. And they found a show, and they organised training, and... 
Um, at the time, I was training for Queering the Air, like, way back in 2012. Oh. Um, and they paid for the training, so that was really nice. Thank you, Queering the Air. They're the best. Keep listening. They're on Sundays um, mm-hmm. around 3 p.m. Oh, my goodness. Sorry, I just listen to the podcast these days, so I don't actually know what time it is. You and your podcast. Yeah, right? I know, oh for real. Um, but, yeah, so it's super easy to get involved, like, just... Personally, if you don't have the money, hmm. just coming into 3CR and saying, hello, I have opinions and views and I'm part of the community and I hit, there's something that you guys are missing, you mm-hmm. folks are missing, I want to contribute. How did you get involved in 3CR? I, I came straight out of year 12, uh-huh. wanted to do something. Uh-huh. I came to the station uh, because my dad is a long-time lover of uh, Joe Toscano's oh. uh, Anarchist World Weekly, and I came in and said, look, I've listened to a few of your shows, I love it, I would love to help out wherever. Mm. So I started in reception. I did reception all last year. Uh-huh. Um, I'd love to do it again when I have some time. And, yeah, they chucked me on a show, went through training. It's fant- absolutely fantastic. It doesn't matter what you end up doing in the station. Mm. Being here is contributing to something yes. bigger and getting voices that just yeah. don't get heard. We have about seven, eight staff. The mm. rest of us, hundreds of volunteers. Yeah. Just all putting our time and our passion into this station. Yeah. I'm a volunteer. Ivan's a volunteer. So mm-hmm. is Dean and so is Judith, who's now moved to Monday for now. Um, <laughs> all volunteers. Um, and so either subscribe... Well, we are, we're also subscribers. So mm. you can subscribe, 94198377 during business hours. Um We've had a great show. We've had a wonderful show. So just going through our show, yes. uh, we've had uh, Tillman Ruff uh, right at the start, which is mm-hmm. honestly one of my uh, heroes. So speaking I'd, from ICANN. Speaking from ICANN. That was absolutely the, fantastic yeah. about the INF Treaty. We've also had uh, then Fiona York from the executive, of, so the executive officer from HAG talking about the impracticalities uh, facing kind of housing policy at the moment for the That's elderly. right. HAG is the Housing for the Aged Action Group. Then we spoke to the fantastic Ella Buckland, who is a Parents Next Reform campaigner. Um, best of luck, Ella, with the, the Senate inquiry that's happening today. Everyone is behind you. Um, you can follow Ella on Twitter, uh, Ella N. Buckland. So Ella, E-L-L-A-N-B-U-C-K-L-A-N-D. She's very active, um, puts a lot of info out there, really great info about Parents Next and what we can do about it. Um, and how did we end the show? Finally, we had Christian from the Australian uh, Conservation Foundation, mm. and he was just talking about Adani's second breach in just as many two, uh, just as in two years. <laughs> second breach in two years. Yuck. Yeah. Okay. Gross. <laughs> Yuck. Um, anyway, so end of the show. End of the show. It's uh, been a great show. Um, yeah. I didn't actually mention that the weather is going to get up to twenty-eight degrees today, <laughs> so it's going to be warm. Tomorrow's thirty-six degrees. Can I you know, imagine? No. 38 the next day. Oh. Just two hot days coming up, so stay cool, <laughs> folks. Um, apart from Radical Radio, what are you grateful for today? Absolutely grateful that radio is uh, listening-based because I have no shoes on right now and I feel very comfortable. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> we're grateful that we're not on community TV. Mm. I am grateful yeah. for... I'm grateful for libraries. I'm grateful for public libraries which are free and that have air conditioning. Love it. Um, it sounds flippant, but I mean it. Like it's a it's a space where you can go and be physically comfortable. I feel safe in a library. Mm. Um, there are all these books around. It's the it's the best. Definitely, definitely. Love your library. With the hot days coming up, make sure you are spending some time in air conditioning or at least somewhere cool. Mm-hmm. Look after yourself um, mm. and look after people who you know might not be, you know, paying attention to the weather. <laughs> That's That's absolutely true. Next up is Stick Together. Stay tuned. Bye.
3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.